0: Valerie can almost see Sam's lips getting thinner and thinner as she listens to her story. When Val's finally done, there's nothing but silence from the other end of the phone, then a long, exasperated hiss. When Sam speaks, her voice is cold, emotionless. (sighs) Someone's fucking around where they shouldn't be, hanging Nadine and Gabriel out to dry. That doesn't sound like something Mitch would do, That's a power play against the Malk Primogen. That's Hawthorne's power play. I agree, Val says, all business. Normally he takes my lead. The last thing he wants to do most of the time is stir the pot. Now Nadine's in an even worse situation than before. Sire's on the chopping block and the Giovanni have a hook on the cam. So much for keeping the peace, Sam says. This could be a problem. The cam and the Anarchs trust you. Trust me to handle things without fucking anyone over. Seems obvious to me Hawthorne's pushing his luck here, and that's a big no-no. I'm gonna take this very seriously. I wouldn't expect anything less, Val says. Well, just thought I should let you know there are other things I have to deal with on my end, a sheriff who needs buttering up. Figure I'll handle that while you work the Hawthorne angle. On the ball as always, Valerie. I'll keep a close eye on Hawthorne if he's interfering with my envoys, He'll wish he was never embraced. Let me know how things go. There's a click and the line goes dead. As Val grabs for her purse on the coffee table, she catches sight of G-Town's waterfront stretching on for seeming eternity beyond her apartment window. Somewhere in that maelstrom of neon and light hugging the edge of Cowies Bay is Sheriff Lucas, wondering who the hell sold him out. Val's plan is to tell him exactly who, but how does she intend to go about it? She could approach him at Elysium, he's always there, and would be the most straightforward option. But he might not appreciate what seems like an obvious power play, otherwise she could try to ask around or tap some contacts to see if she can find one of his regular haunts. Do him a favour by approaching him away from prying ears. The beast is ever-present, and Tig understands this right now more than ever. As Elaine's gossip over dinner turns to the topic of Jack, the farmer down the road, and his recent trouble with foxes, Tig shuffles nervously in his seat. He avoids her glance, grunts noncommittally, and hyper-focuses on the bangers and mash on the plate in front of him. Reckons they tore three of his cows apart says Elaine, darting around the table, pouring coca-cola into the family's cups. Reckons they took blood, she says, pointedly, folding her arms as Tig grabs his drink. Since when do foxes drink blood, scoffs Wallace, heaping a spoonful of mashed potato into his mouth. Dad, did you... Wallace, don't talk with your mouth full, scolds Elaine before turning to Tig with thin lips. "'Your father wouldn't do any such thing. "'He's always careful. "'He'd never draw attention to himself like that. "'Would you?' "'She stares knowingly at her husband "'as she finally settles into her seat across the table. "'Tig sighs. "'He pushes his plate away and stands. "'Sorry, love,' he says. "'Top-nosh as always, "'but I promise I'd meet a man about a thing. "'Vampire stuff.' "'He excuses himself and steps away from the table.' immediately making a beeline for the screen door. As it slams shut behind him, Elaine and Wallace hear his work boots echo on the veranda as he descends the back stairs, and then he's gone. Tig crosses the farmyard, a black shape moving in the darkness. He comes to a newly fenced off paddock on the very edge of his acreage, so far from the house, that the light from the kitchen window is nothing more than a pinprick in a sea of stars. Lethargic cows cluster together in the scrub, inching away in fear as he approaches, instinctually sensing the beast. Now, now, whispers Tig into the darkness. I ain't gonna hurt ya, we're all friends here. You're just scared because you knew is all. He extracts a bundle of hay from a rusted bin and holds it over the fence, proffering it to the cattle, a peace offering. The animals stare back, unmoving, their frightened eyes gleaming in the moonlight. Come on, Tig urges, shaking the hay in his hand. It's just a little prezzy. He's not too worried. New additions to the herd always take time to break in, but these ones could probably use some extra coaxing. Tig grits his teeth, forcing the grumbling beast into the pit of his stomach. He can't let it get the best of him again, not when these poor creatures can sense its unnatural hunger. Yeah, now, I ain't gonna hurt ya. He says softly, rustling the bundle of hay. No need for all this mucking around. He catches sight of a small calf, edging slowly away from the protection of the herd, its beady eyes watching him cautiously. Slowly, carefully, he lowers the hay into the scrub on the other side of the fence, softly cooing to the startled baby. Come on, little one, you ain't gotta be scared. We're good mates calf awkwardly stumbles towards the fence, its eyes wide, slowly drifting from Tig's face to the bounty at his feet. That's it mate, Tig whispers encouragingly. Come and eat, it's good, Tucker. He takes a step away from the fence as the fledgling's nose begins to nuzzle at the hay. One by one the rest of the herd approaches, their courage bolstered by the sound of the calves contented munching. Another bundle of hay drops over the fence, then another, as the last of the new addition starts to tuck into its meal Tig scratches it behind the ears then stands back to address the entire herd see now we've got an arrangement you and me you take care of me and i'll take care of you the cows bury their muzzles in the hay in silent understanding Tig leans back against the bin his arms folded satisfied so long as he can keep the beast at bay he thinks he hasn't lost his touch He watches them eat for a moment more, vowing to make sure they never spook his animals again. And bloody hell. He finally spots what the herd has been huddled around just moments ago, a bloody misshapen mess in the dry grass. One of the new cows he'd bought only last week torn to shreds, flaps of skin draped over the blades of grass, still bright crimson with wet blood. Tig's phone vibrates in his jeans pocket, jolting him back to reality. Forcing himself to look away from the horrific scene, he fishes it out and squints at the screen. Be fucking careful, Tig. Lupine's getting antsy again. Bunyip. Thin plaster walls of Club Violet's changing room reverberate with the bass pounding from the dance floor outside but the peeling leather armchair that Bouncer sinks into is the most comfortable thing she's ever felt. She's been on her feet almost non-stop for the last week, helping Melissa get the new security guys up to snuff. Somehow, through a combination of shouting, raw grit, and genuine encouragement, she's managed to turn three fresh-faced rookies into respectable tough guys, a decent deterrent to anyone trying to get two hands-on with Club Violet's female staff. Tonight... Finally feeling confident enough to turn them loose for their first proper shift, Bouncer finally has a chance to sit down and catch her breath, and turn her attention to matters of the blood. She feels the beast growl in her gut as the happy-go-lucky face of Lacy the Toreador flashes into her mind. She'd seemed cooperative enough to Bouncer at the time, bullshit games with her lackeys aside, but now that she's had time to think about it, Bouncer can't quite shake the feeling that something wasn't quite right. It's clear to her that Lacey had pushed her social weight with presence. Hadn't worked on Tig, desperately trying to stave off frenzy, but Bouncer had fallen for it hook, line, and sinker. Bouncer grits her teeth, bitterly reflecting on how she'd bought the Toreador's crazy story without demanding more concrete proof. Didn't seem like she had anything to hide. Still didn't now, but she was still a vampire. And Bouncer doesn't like being lied to. She clenches her fist, her long nails digging into the scuffed upholstery. Anarchs aren't supposed to be pulling fast ones on each other, that's can bullshit. She realises now that she walked away from that meeting with Lacey with no real promise of not getting fucked over at some point in the future. She's going to rectify that. Lacey is reluctant to meet Bouncer on her own terms, but she can't deny that Bouncer's name pulls some weight among the Anarchs, she eventually relents when she realises her rep is at stake. A few nights later, Bouncer can't help but smirk, amused, at the sight of Lacey in full scene girl get-up, skirting the edges of Club Violet's dance floor, nervously dodging drunken patrons as they attempt to coax her into the swelling mass of flesh and sweat. It's not her kind of party, and this suits Bouncer fine. Lacey slides into the private booth opposite Bouncer, awkwardly smiling. Before she has a chance to say anything, Bouncer shakes her fist. None of that presents bullshit this time, right? Lacey silently nods. Color rushes into her face as she activates the blush of life and requests a drink from one of the girls. So, uh, a really cool place you got here, she says. But you didn't call me here just to show me your digs did you word on the street is you want to discuss business or something or something says bouncer as she looks over to the bar meeting the eyes of the bartender and gesturing for one of her regular drinks now before we get down to it i just want to make it clear that this is off the books i didn't ask you here because of sam you don't have to worry about me pulling some harpy stunt secretly recording this or anything we're just here anarch to anarch. she gives a reassuring smile Wanted to talk about your ghoul. It's not that I don't believe you are unaware of what he did, but whether he was dominated into doing it or it was someone else disguises him, I'm sure you understand why someone stealing kindred blood would worry me. My retainer, Lacy says, feigning concern. It's kind of you to worry, but I'm not sure there's anything else I can tell you. Bouncer smiles again, encouraging. If the rest of the coterie could see her now, they'd say it was entirely out of character seems to penetrate Lacey's armor. She quickly scans the club, making sure nobody's listening in and then leans across the table meeting Bouncer's eyes. She lowers her voice and says something. Realizing she's completely inaudible in the cacophony of dance music and crowd noise, she shrugs and speaks in a loud monotone. I've got a way with people. It's how I know whether someone's in it for the art, or whether they're just trying to pull a grift. Believe me, I know stealing Nadine's blood is serious shit. So I read his aura, tried as hard as I could to find some sign that he was lying to me, and I'm convinced he had nothing to do with it. She pauses, biting her lip, clearly trying to decide whether she wishes to proceed. Eventually, she takes a breath and continues. But there's something else. I didn't mention it to you or Tig. I didn't know what you'd make of it, but for some reason I feel like I can trust you right now. Don't fuck me over on this. I figured something wasn't right, so I checked the flat where my retainer lives. It was clear to me someone's been watching him. Locks on the windows had been tampered with. Things in the house weren't where he claims he left them. He told me he was sure he woke up one night to find someone standing by the side of the bed in the darkness. somehow convinced himself it was a nightmare. God knows how long it's been going on for. Look, here's what I want to know, Lacey says, as one of Melissa's girls softly places a cocktail glass on the table, She waits until the waitress has disappeared once again into the neon haze, then downs the entire drink in a single long gulp. What are you planning on doing with this info? Nadine is Cam. Your friends are the Val Harding, a harpy. If this gets out, my retainer's on the chopping block. Bouncer takes a sip of her drink, and smiles. Don't worry, I'll only tell them what they need to know, nothing more. My plan for the moment is to find out who's been doing this and why. Odds are they've been doing this to others, and if they've gotten blood from others, that makes it even more worrying. If we find out who's behind this, we can get your boy off the chopping block. Lacey seems to ease a little. She shifts the empty cocktail glass to the side and leans in over the table, bringing her face within inches of bounces. She silently takes in every detail of Bouncer's face, intently studying every line. Don't worry, I'm not aura-reading you, she says. I'm just, like I said, I have a way with people. Sometimes they're in it for the wrong reasons, but sometimes... She nods, suddenly sure of something, and leans back. Tension seeming to melt off her body, she returns Bounce's smile. You've got my back, don't you, Pip? Can I call you Pip? Without waiting for an answer, she continues. I care about my retainers, you know. They're not just ghouls or members of a herd to me. Each and every one is the heart and soul of an artist. We get each other. So I'm going to be keeping an eye on things. And if I find out anything else, I'll let you know. She stands up, glumly looking over the dance floor, carefully waiting for an opportunity to squeeze through the wall of flesh. Look, I gotta go. But I appreciate you laying your cards on the table, and I've repaid you in kind. You can consider us Friends. Anarch to anarch. On the Barton University campus, Mitch is something of a cryptid. Rarely seen outside a class, and even then, almost never witness socializing. Just the act of meeting with Henry for a quick drink on the way home from nightly business is enough to capture the curiosity of the entire student body. Henry chose the venue. A small bar on the shore of the campus lake, newly opened and already a favourite among party crazed first years, university sweethearts looking for a romantic spot to spend a few hours, and traumatised post-grads alike. Mitch was told that it's a nice, cosy place to relax, have a drink, and catch up, no pressure, and yet, as soon as he steps over the threshold into the homely, candlelit establishment, Mitch feels dozens of eyes watching him. A buzz of excited voices fills the bar, student gossip appraising him as he scans the crowd of faces for Henry. Oh my god, that's, that's Dr. Kilpatrick, my, my maths 201 lecturer! Wait, that's him? He looks so out of place! What's he even doing here? You never see him outside of his office! Mitch quickly spies Henry, contemplating a wine glass at a little wooden table by a bay window that looks out onto the sparkling lake and begins to make his way towards him, awkwardly dodging the stairs and attempts at conversation from the curious students. He slides into the handcrafted chair opposite Henry and snatches up the drinks menu, burying himself in it to escape the furtive stolen glances from students, trying to catch a glimpse of him out of his element. Henry smiles awkwardly, shrugging, Uh, Sorry about that, he says. This is usually a quiet little spot. I'd no idea you were part of campus folklore. He raises a hand, signalling the attention of the bartender, who eagerly looks over. First round's on me, says Henry. What's your poison? Mitchell feels his skin crawl as the entire bar seems to start staring at him. Sure, he may have never been particularly social, even in life, and this only got worse with his vampirism, but it wasn't that unusual to see him out in public, right? He chooses not to think about it, and instead focuses on Henry and the menu in front of him. Folklore, Minch murmurs, his finger tracing the names of drinks as he decides which ones are safe for tonight. Can't order the screwdriver, as that will lead to the assassination of an important world leader and cause a full-scale nuclear war, the old-fashioned is a safe choice, though. Mitchell never cared for bourbon, and so I uh, i suppose socialising was never particularly in my wheelhouse, but this is uh, certainly interesting. He sets the menu down. I'll, uh, I'll have the Negroni, he says. So uh, how, how are your students this semester? The bartender places Mitch's drink down on the table, smiling. Letting your hair down, doctors, she asks, obviously curious. Just a talking shop, says Henry, tipping her. Papers to mark, lectures to plan, you know. As soon as she's out of earshot, he winks at Mitch across the table. She's one of yours, isn't she? You've got a real chance to reach out to your students, Mitchell, you know. Show them that you're a human just like the rest of us and that you like a night off like anyone else. He takes a sip of wine, savors it, then swallows. Ah, my students. Yeah, can't complain. Handled that paper I mentioned better than I thought they would. Got a few promising ones. Nathan Ross, you heard of him? Reckon he's on track for honours. I might supervise him if Hawthorne doesn't snap him up first. Takes another sip. Speaking of which, you've been teaching here for, what, 20 years now? I don't think you've ever supervised anyone. You're more than qualified for it, I think. In the back of Mitch's mind, he's keenly aware of the bartender making a huge show out of cleaning one particular pitcher as she strains to listen in. He vaguely recognises her. He's seen her face in class a few times. She's pretty quiet. Alana, he thinks her name is? Mitch sips his drink with a nervous glance at Alana, his mind filling in the blanks on why why she's so interested in their conversation. He tries to push it down can't look weird in front of Henry. Nathan Ross, hmm, the name is familiar. Hawthorne has brought him up before, something about a valuable asset, and Mitch had tried not to dwell on the idea of not being the favoured child anymore. His rank was tenuous already, and Hawthorne finding a new student to mould? Supervisings just always scared me a little, I suppose, Mitch says. I I mean, I just don't want just don't know about my abilities as a mentor like that you know like you said I'm somewhat folkloric on campus I hardly think anyone wants me as their supervisor he gives a nervous smile one that borders on a grimace Henry smiles back half commiserating and half encouraging he reaches for his wine glass realizes that it's empty and shrugs as he waves Alana over for a refill Mitch awkwardly sinks back into his chair the ever-present feeling of being watched scrutinized judged simmers in his gut seemingly stronger than ever he peers around the bar he can't be that interesting to the students can he folkloric or not his gaze passes over the bar's patrons several of them turning their heads at the last possible second becoming suddenly hyper-focused on their drinks a girl with auburn hair and glasses vaguely familiar blushes in embarrassment as he catches her craning her neck to catch a glimpse of him. Then Mitch peers past her into a shadowy corner lit only by the neon glow of a jukebox, and, ah, Hawthorne stands there, obfuscated, his form shimmering and waving like a science fiction hologram. He looks up, his eyes meeting Mitch's, and he curtly nods, a silent warning. Know your place.